What makes Christianity so great and Rainbow Drive such a great congregation is the fact that we start training them right here at Devin Jones' age. Now, <laughs> you can see Devin is not accustomed to being on TV, but I guarantee he's accustomed to being in church. He's two and a half years old. He's the son of Butch Jones, our, our one of our deacons, and who uh, coordinates and heads the television program. He's the daughter of uh, Kathy Jones and the grandson of Jim and Judy Smith, two of the greatest Christians that you'll ever meet on this earth. And I haven't got the slightest concern in the world about what direction little Devin's going to go in. He's going to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, being taught about the Lord, and he'll grow up to be a tremendous young man and a tremendous Christian. But now the question is, what about your little child? Are you bringing him to church like the Joneses bring Devin to church? Are you giving him the opportunity to learn about the Lord like the Jones are giving Devin the opportunity? Devin is one of the most fortunate little boys in the world. Your child can be one of the most fortunate little boys and little girls in the world if you'll do what his parents are doing with him. So Devin now is not a ham, you know, he doesn't care about being on TV, so we're going to give him back to his daddy now. Bye, Devin. <laughs> okay, we're just so proud to have Devin with us, and I really mean that sincerely, that you need to be doing with your child what Kathy and Butch are doing with little Devin, and you need to be bringing them to Sunday school, and we have classes for little children Devin's age, just two and a half years old, and... You start bringing them up from the time that they're born in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and you start bringing them to church from the time that they're born. And when they grow up, they'll be accustomed to coming to church. Church will be a part of their lives, and they'll be the kind of young people in the vast majority of cases that we would want them to be. We always encourage our television audience now to worship with us at the Rainbow Drive Church of Christ, 2201 Rainbow Drive in Gadsden. Our Bible studies at 9.30, our worship hour at 10.30, our evening worship hour is at 6 o'clock p.m. I really believe from the depths of my heart, if you'll come and worship with us, that you'll leave here happy that you came. I know that you'll not leave sorry that you came. You'll be able to see how we worship. You'll be able to worship God. and We worship Him in spirit and truth, and you'll hear the gospel proclaimed. You'll be able to take your Bible and follow along with us as we preach the gospel. You'll, you'll uh, sit through a wonderful uh, Bible class prior to the worship services. You'll learn much about the Word of God there. And I just know that you'll love the people here. Rainbow Drive, in my opinion, is a special congregation. I know that I'm a little bit prejudiced being the preacher here, but nevertheless, I believe it's a special congregation made up of truly wonderful people. And we're here to serve you in any way that we can, and certainly we're here to serve our Lord and to worship Him in spirit and in truth and to take the gospel to as many people as we possibly can. I'm going to preach now this morning another one of those expository sermons from the Gospel of John. And I want you to take your Bibles and follow along with me. The verses that we'll cover today in this lesson are 2 John, verses 13 through 25, the 13th verse through the conclusion of the chapter. The 13th verse says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes' money and overthrew the tables. Now here's an incident, friends and brethren, of Jesus becoming angry. So we learn from this incident that there is such a thing as righteous indignation. There's such a thing as justified anger. And there's such a thing as being angry and not sinning. Because we know that Jesus Christ never sinned. He was without sin. And yet on this occasion, he was very upset and became angry. So obvious, obviously his anger here was not a sin. It was what we would call righteous indignation. It was what we call justified anger. You know, there's a whole lot of things in this world that should anger us in such a manner that we don't sin. 
If you're not angered by what Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany did to those six million Jewish people, men, women, and children in the back in the 30s and 40s, well, there's something wrong. Seem to me you're less than human. Certainly that arouses an individual's ire. It arouses his anger to think that uh, human beings could perpetuate such uh, uh, terrible, terrible uh, atrocities upon one another. It just makes you wonder what could possess us human beings to do such terrible things to each other. And certainly that arouses my anger. Every time I watch a movie about the Holocaust, it just sometimes even upsets me to think that human beings could treat other human beings in such a terrible, terrible manner. If you don't, if your anger is not aroused by this little boy that you may have read about in the paper a while back whose father got angry with his mother and lighted the boy's fed, lighted him a fire, and thinking he would kill the boy in order to get back at his mother. Now, you talk about sick, friends and brethren. That's about as sick as you can be to make that little boy suffer because he was angry with his mother. But anyway, the little boy survived the burning. But he changed from a beautiful, healthy, handsome little boy to a boy that is now grotesquely disfigured, has undergone some over 100 surgeries, and he'll never, never be anything that even be, that would even be near normal. He has to go through his life bearing this terrible burden of this scarred and burnt and uh, deeply disfigured face because of his father lighting his bed of fire. Now, if that doesn't arouse your ire, if that doesn't arouse your anger, if that doesn't upset you, well, there's something wrong. If people aren't upset by things like that, then... The people who aren't upset have got the problem. The sin may be in situations like that if you don't get upset. If you watch mobs murder and hang innocent people, and that doesn't arouse your anger, arouse your ire, well, once again, there's just simply something wrong. So Jesus here was angry, but he was rightfully angry. Now, here was the feast of the Passover. You know that under the Old Testament dispensation, they had many feast days that were memorials for the Jewish people. The feast of the Passover was to remind them of the fact that the death angel passed over their over the home and spared the firstborn when the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the lintel. And they were to come together and observe that feast and remember God's goodness towards them. The Sabbath day was given to the Jewish people in order to commemorate their deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Read that in Deuteronomy 5. The Sabbath day was given to the Jewish people for a specific purpose. If you're not Jewish and if your ancestors were not delivered from Egyptian bondage, then you're not to observe the Passover. And certainly even Jews today are not to observe the Passover because Christianity now has superseded the Old Testament religion, the religion of Moses. But anyway, the Sabbath was given for, to the Jews to commemorate the fact that uh, they had been delivered from Egyptian bondage. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was given in order to commemorate their wandering in the desert. They'll sleep in these booths and things for a week at a time. They did to commemorate the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Pentecost, and all different kind of feast days. Now, even in the New Testament religion, friends and brethren, the Lord has laid aside or commanded us to do certain things to commemorate the major events that uh, concerning Christianity. The first day of the week, we come together to honor Jesus Christ, to remember his resurrection, to worship him in spirit and in truth. We partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of each week because those emblems remind us of what Jesus did for us. The unleavened bread reminds us of his, reminds us of his body that hung on Calvary's cross on our behalf. The fruit of the vine reminds us of the blood that he shed on our behalf. We do show forth his death until he comes again. And certainly the partaking of the Lord's Supper is a very important moment in the life of a Christian that takes place each and every week. And commemoration, if you will, of what Jesus did for us and the fact that he's going to come again. So the Christian religion 
pattern somewhat along those lines after the religion that God ordained in the Mosaic dispensation in which we have certain days that we certain practices that commemorate great events in the Christian religion. Well, the Feast of the Passover commemorated a great event in the religion of Moses and the Mosaic dispensation. Now, here when these people were supposed to be coming together to observe this great feast day and honor God and worship God, these men were making a mockery out of that occasion. These men were taking advantage of that occasion to make money for themselves. They were using religion for their own personal benefit. Now, friends and brethren, of all of the things in this world that a person can do wrong, I'm not so certain in my own mind that right up there among the very worst sins would be to use religion. Whenever I watch now, and I'm going to say this with love, but I'm going to say it because it needs to be said. When I watch these television evangelists who do nothing but plead for money, beg for money, and tell people that by sending money into that uh, TV evangelist or the program that he's uh, on the air with or the group that he represents, that they're going to have a softer life and God is going to bless them and they, things are going to be made much easier for them or they may be healed of some disease or all these other promises that these evangelists make in an effort to get these people to send in their donations. Whenever I hear one of these evangelists making those kind of pleas and begging for many of those poor people to send in money that they need to, for the necessities of life while this television evangelist lives the most lavish lifestyle imaginable, while he drives the most expensive automobiles and eats the most uh, elaborate food and wears the plushest clothing and begging these poor people on his television program, many of them on fixed incomes, many of them widows and many of them very poor people to send their money in in order to sustain in many instances that lavish lifestyle that he pursues, I think... I wouldn't want to be in the shoes of that person in the judgment. I just wouldn't want to be in their shoes. If I'm going to be dishonest, if I'm going to deceive people, I'd rather do it as a member of the mafia than I would to use religion to deceive people. If there's such an expression, if an expression such as honest crook can be used, which certainly that would be an anomaly or a misnomer, but if you use that expression, an honest crook, well, that's what you could call a member of the mafia. He's a member of the mafia. He makes his living uh, illegally. He does things that are dishonest, and he knows this. He doesn't make any false pretenses about it. He recognizes that it's a, it's, a, it's a lifestyle that's contrary to the law of the land and contrary to the law of God and what have you. But now you take a man that gets before people and claims to be so spiritual. And you take a man that claims to be representing God on this earth. You take a man that claims to be speaking in place of God. And this man uses people. And this man becomes personally wealthy through his deceiving of people. I don't know that there's a much greater or worse sin that a person could commit. If Jesus became angry with these Pharisees of his day and these people that were selling this oxen and using the Lord's house as a place of business in which they could gain, gain financial remuneration and what have you, if Jesus became angry with these people and overthrew their tables and sent their apparatus and money and what have you all over the floor, how much more angry would he be with preachers today that deceive and mislead people in order for they themselves to prosper? If we don't have an example here of the side of the nature of God, the nature of Jesus Christ, that people should be concerned with and shows that God is not going to tolerate this idea of misusing religion or this idea of deceit and dishonesty and that God is going to punish people that pursue that lifestyle, 
Friends and brethren, then we just aren't able to learn about God's nature. When it comes to Jesus Christ now, Jesus Christ was the most loving man who ever graced the face of this earth. The most compassionate man, if you can call him a man, who ever graced the face of this earth. He said in Matthew 11 and 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly and humble at heart. Ye shall find rest for your souls. In John 19 and 27, Almost with his dying breath, he commended the care of his mother to the Apostle John, was concerned about his mother when he was dying, always concerned about other people, always worrying about other people, always trying to help other people, always doing things to show his compassion towards other people. He was the most compassionate man who ever lived, the most forgiving man, if you can call him a man. Our Savior was so forgiving, and certainly that ought to be uplifting and encouraging and strengthening to every follower of Christ. In John 8, chapter, when the Pharisees wanted to stone that woman to death who was caught in the act of adultery, Jesus said, let him without sin cast the first stone at her. And when they all walked away from the eldest to the least, being convicted by their own conscience, Jesus turned to that woman and he said, where are thine accusers? She said, I have none. Jesus said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. In Luke, the seventh chapter, when that sinful woman came into the home of Simon where Jesus was eating and she washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair, Simon said to himself, Now this man can't be a prophet sent from God. If this man were a prophet sent from God, he'd know what manner of woman this was that was, that was touching him. A sinner. And Jesus could, could read that Simon's heart, then went on to give him the uh, illustration of the man who owed 500 pence and the man who owed 50 pence and the uh, creditor forgave the both of them, wiped the slate clean. He said, now which one of them do you think that the will love that creditor the most? And he said, I suppose the man who owed him the most. And Jesus said, thou hast rightly said. That's why that woman loved him so much because she was a great sinner but had received and would receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Simon, who considered himself so righteous and so good and so moral, he never saw the need for forgiveness, so naturally he wouldn't love Jesus and wouldn't to take advantage of Jesus' forgiveness and Jesus' mercy the way that that simple woman did. And Jesus simply said to that woman, Thy faith has saved thee. While he was hanging on Calvary's cross, among his dying words, he said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Prayed for the very people who crucified him in Luke 23 and 34. In the 43rd verse, he said to the thief on the cross, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. He was the most forgiving God, the most forgiving person who ever graced the face of this earth. And certainly we ought to be so grateful for that ought to appreciate so much what our Savior has done for us and the love that He's manifested for us and the kind of a Savior that we have. But, friends and brethren, now, after pointing that out about that side of Jesus' nature, we make a grave mistake if we ignore the other side of His nature. The side of His nature that becomes very angry. The side of His nature that becomes very vengeful, if you will, towards people who misuse Him or His Father, towards people that reject Him, over in Luke, the 14th chapter, begin with the 15th verse, when Jesus told that great parable about this man who had this great feast all prepared and told his servants to go out and invite the people to come in, to share in the feast, and the people wouldn't come in. They begin to make all kinds of excuses. One man said he just bought a lot of lot or a plot of ground and he had to go tend it. And another man said he just bought five oxen and he had to go tend them. And another man said he just married a wife and he had to go and take care of her and tend to her. And they made all the excuses not to come to this feast, just like people today are still making excuses to reject Jesus Christ. So Jesus became very 
said that the master became very upset and he told the servants to go out in the highways and hedges and bring in the poor and the crippled and tell them to come in for the feast. And they finally went out and brought all these people into the feast and Jesus said those people who rejected him would not be allowed to come into the feast. They would be turned away. They rejected the Lord and that angered the Lord, angered him extremely to the point where he showed that other side of his nature. When Jesus told that parable of Matthew 25, the first 13 verses about the five wise and unwise virgins, and he said the five wise virgins went to meet the bridegroom and brought with them extra oil and prepared to meet that bridegroom. And the five unwise, they didn't bring any extra oil, and they slept and slumbered and didn't prepare themselves to meet the bridegroom. When the bridegroom came, the five wise virgins were immediately ushered in. The five unwise wanted some of their oil. They couldn't get it because the five because the five wise virgins needed it for themselves. So while the five unwise virgins were going out trying to get the extra oil, the chambers were shut. And when they came and knocked on the doors, they could not get in. They were not allowed to go in. Jesus is simply teaching there about the fact that when people reject his invitation, when people reject him, that angers him. It angers the Heavenly Father. And the side of his nature that we see here, that we read about in our text for this morning, comes out. Second Thessalonians, the first chapter, verse 7 through 9, To all you are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just as certainly as we must understand the love and the mercy and the kindness and the compassion of our Lord, we also must understand, friends and brethren, that we have a God that is not going to tolerate the rejecting of Him and that becomes extremely angry towards those who do reject Him. In the 16th and 17th verses we read, He said unto them that sold doves, this is Jesus speaking now, Take these things hence, make not my Father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Don't misuse religion. Friends and brethren, all of you watching this program, many of you, you watched me on Channel 40 for many, many years. You know that not once in some 13 years have we ever requested for anyone to send any donations into this television program. This program is supported by the brethren at Rainbow Drive. And we don't want donations. A few times people have uh, sent me donations without any uh, solicitation on my part, obviously, whatsoever. And I've sent those donations back to them. Appreciate it very much. But we're not here to get people's money. We're here because we want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We expect Christians to give as they've been prospered to support the Lord's work. And faithful Christians do exactly that. And that's why we can put on programs such as this. We don't expect people who are not members of the body of Jesus Christ to send their money to us. We're not after your money. We don't look for your money. We don't want your money. We want you to hear what we have to say as we strive to the best of our ability to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not here to make the church of our Lord a house of merchandise. We're not here to turn the church of our Lord into something that's concerned about financial gain. We're here for spiritual reasons, and we're on this program to preach the precious gospel of Jesus Christ to you. Now, the 18th verse, that then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Now, the Jewish people on this occasion did what mankind almost always does, if I can borrow an old uh, colloquialism or expression of the streets, when he's caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He tries to make excuses. Here Jesus caught these people in the very act, these money changers in the very act of desecrating his father's house. 
making a house of merchandise out of a place that was supposed to be there, supposed to be of a spiritual nature. Caught them in the very act, overthrew their table, set their money on the, on the spreading on the floor and clanging on the floor. And what do these people do? They're trying to find something wrong with Jesus. What right do you have to tell us to do these things? Jesus, they knew that they were wrong. They never tried to defend their actions. They didn't deal with the reason that Jesus uh, threw them out of the temple and drove them out of the temple with that uh, cord and scourged and scourged them, what have you. They didn't deal with that. They just wanted to know, by what authority do you do this? Who gave you the right to do this? Isn't that the way it always is with people who are in a position which they know they can't defend? Indefensible positions. You have a discussion with somebody about the Bible and... He sees that he can't defend his position from the Bible. What does he do? He attacks you personally. Tries to undermine you personally. Tries to uh, to question your integrity and your honesty and all the rest. How many times people refuse to obey the Lord or refuse to become Christians because they claim that they know some hypocrite in the church? Or how many times people fall away from the church because, again, they say that some people in the church are hypocrites. We're always looking for something wrong with somebody else in order to get the... Uh, tension off of ourselves. That's exactly what these people were doing. Instead of standing up and saying, hey, we were wrong to be using the Lord's house in that way. We were wrong to be uh, exchanging money that way. We were wrong to be gaining financially in that manner. We need to correct that. We need to straighten that out. We need to repent of that. Instead of doing that, they tried to find something wrong with Jesus. They tried to absolve their themselves by finding something wrong with the Son of God. Friends and brethren, let me say this again with all the love that's within me. You can't get to heaven that way. You just can't get there that way. No man, no woman is ever going to go to heaven confessing the sins of other people. That's not how we get there. Until we're willing to admit to our own sins, until we're willing to repent of those sins and turn from them in the best way that we know how, until we're willing to turn to the Lord and recognize that it's only through His blood that we can be saved and obey Him in baptism so that we can appropriate that blood to our lives, we're going to be outside of the ark of safety. We're not going to be in a covenant relationship with the Lord. And we can make a million and one excuses, and we can look at a thousand and two other people. And we can compare ourselves with all of the hypocrites in the church. But that won't get us to heaven. We might compare ourselves favorably with the hypocrites in the church. But that still won't get us to heaven. Unless you repent, ye shall also likewise perish. Now Jesus answers them and says, Destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus says, I'll tell you the authority by which I do this. When you destroy this body, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. God, Jehovah God, won't resurrect me from the dead. I'll be resurrected from the dead. That proves my authority to do what I did. I'm the Son of God, the Savior of the world. I came into the world to seek and to save the lost. That's my authority. And when you destroy this temple and I rebuild it in three days, you'll understand my authority. Now, the 20th verse. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years with this temple and building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Now, the Jews made again the mistake, friends and brethren, that people are still making today. Maybe the most prominent mistake of all when it comes to our understanding of the Bible. They apply Jesus' words in a physical, secular, earthly sense. They took spiritual words, destroyed this temple, now rebuilt it in three days, and they gave those spiritual words an earthly application. They said, well, what is he talking about? Solomon's temple? The Lord wasn't making reference to Solomon's temple. He's pointing about, about the temple of his body. Yet these very worldly-minded, carnally-minded men 
understood them to be speaking of something on this earth, something temporary, something carnal like they were carnal. Isn't that the same mistake that people are making today? Jesus comes into the world with a spiritual message. He comes into the world to seek and to save the lost. He comes into the world to bear the sins of mankind on his, sho- in his, on his shoulders and the tree. And all who are believing are obedient to him, he has bore their sins in his body on the tree. He comes into the world for no other purpose, friends and brethren, no other reason than to pay the price for sin, than to seek and to save the lost. And what do we do with his message? We give that message a material, earthly meaning. We tell people that uh, if you follow after Jesus Christ, you'll be healed physically. If you follow after Jesus Christ, you'll... uh, Or we don't tell people, but a lot of preachers do, a lot of religions do. You follow after Jesus Christ, and uh, you'll be blessed uh, financially. You'll be blessed materially. We lose sight completely and totally of Jesus' mission, and we do the same thing that the Jews of the first century did. We just seemingly cannot understand that Jesus Christ did not come into the world to perform miracles or to heal the sick or to feed the poor. For every miracle he performed, there were 50,000 of miracles that he didn't perform. For every sick person he healed, there were tens of thousands of sick people that he didn't heal. For every poor person he fed, there were tens of thousands of poor people that he didn't feed. He performed the miracles. He healed the sick and he fed the poor for one reason. To get those people to see they're his contemporaries and posterity, you and me, to understand that he was the Son of God, that he was the Savior of the world, so they would listen to his spiritual message. But when he fed the 5,000 plus men and women and children, plus women and children with the five body loaves and the two fish, then they followed after them because they wanted the loaves of the fish. When he healed the sick, people followed after them because they wanted to be healed of their physical diseases. And that wasn't Jesus' purpose in coming into the world. His purpose in coming into the world was to save mankind spiritually. Well, people today still following after him because of the loaves and the fish thinking that they're going to prosper financially by following after him, still following after him, thinking that they can be healed of some disease that they have if they follow after him, and they never seem to understand that that wasn't the purpose that Jesus came into the world. That isn't why he came into the world to world to perform miracles and to heal the sick and to feed the poor. He came into the world in order to seek and to save the lost and to die for the sins of mankind. All right, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember that he'd said of them that he believed the scripture and the scripture, the word that Jesus had said. Even his disciples misunderstood. I'm just about out of time. Even his disciples misunderstood his mission until after his resurrection from the dead. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Their friends and brethren is... It's perfect, an explanation of why Jesus performed the miracles as you can find anywhere in this world. John, the second chapter, the 23rd verse. John 20 and 31, many other signs Jesus truly did in front of his disciples have not written in this book. These are written that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and through that belief have life in his name. John 2 and 23 says, when they saw the miracles which he did, they believed he was the Son of God. That was the purpose for performing the miracles, to convince those people that he was the Son of God. All right, friends and brethren, he's been, mankind has been convinced that he's the Son of God. Are you not watching this program this morning because you believe Jesus Christ was the Son of God? Does not mankind today, those who follow after Jesus, believe that he was the Son of God? All right, Jesus has proven that. His word has been confirmed, the fact that he was whom he claimed to be, and that's why... 
the miraculous gifts ceased with the coming of the word. Love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, when that which is perfect is to come, that which is a part shall be done away with. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. So the reason for the miracles has been fulfilled. There's no longer any need for the miracles because Jesus has proved himself to be the Son of God. And now, friends and brethren, we've got to turn to Jesus for those spiritual reasons. We've got to turn to Jesus not because we want to necessarily be more blessed financially or gain financially or because we want to be healed of our diseases. If God, through the through nature, the medicines we take, decides to heal us, that's great and wonderful. But that's not the reason, friends and brethren, that we follow after him. Follow after him in order to go to heaven. In order to have our sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ, we must believe that he's the Son of God. We must confess him before men. We must repent of our sins. We must be baptized into him for the remission of our sins. And then we contact his precious blood that cleanses us of our sins. We're added to the church of the New Testament. And we take on the hope that comes with being a follower of Jesus. Thank you so much for watching the program. May God love all of you as he does love all of you.